0: With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app.
1: Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, February 9th, 2022. This is our 314th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. If you are a regular listener to the show, you may have noticed that we skipped a show last week with Chef Sean Hargott. He had a last-minute scheduling conflict, so we hope to have him on in the near future. Today, my guest is the first ever Senior Executive Director of New York City's Mayor's Office of Nightlife, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the the week. So today's tip is to let things happen organically. Yes, let's allow our careers and our lives to develop and evolve at their own natural pace. Let's be open to what can come next from our conversations, encounters, and our work, believing that they can lead to that next great opportunity if we are open to it. So let's embrace our experiences and journeys and let the magic unfold. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very happy to have my guest joining me. It is Arielle Pallitz. She is the Senior Executive Director for the Office of Nightlife at the NYC Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, and she is the first ever appointed in this position. A lifelong New Yorker and nightlife professional, Arielle came to the role with deep experience in both nightlife and community building. She previously owned and operated Sutra Lounge, a nightclub on Manhattan's Lower East Side, and served on Manhattan's Community Community Board 3's Liquor Licensing Committee. She also helped nightlife entrepreneurs open their own establishments through her consulting company, Venue Advisors. Without further ado, hi, Ariel, Welcome to the show.
2: Hello, and thank you so much for having me.
1: My pleasure. I am so excited to chat with you and hear all about your career and what you've been up to now with nightlife. So, let's go back a bit to your background. Can you take us um a, a bit through like what led you into the hospitality and night, night, nightlife industry?
2: I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in New York City, uh, and I like to say I grew up going out, and New York in and of itself is a nightlife kind of town. Your parents usually go out to events and experience the city, and as soon as I was old enough, that's exactly what I was doing, going to venues, meeting with my friends, and it was just where I found my community. It was where I felt most at home. I love the music, the vibe, the diversity, the people. And it's really, I think, subconsciously where I always felt my best and where my people were. Um, So that's really where it started, just growing up, going out. And then eventually, you know, I went to high school and to college and while I was in college I started doing a regular party there called uh, the Solution, which was a live music open jam session and it was meant to be a common ground for diverse expression bringing the diversity of the university together and I did this for many years while I was on campus and when i came back to the city i had gone to college in connecticut i wound up throwing these parties in new york and i did so for almost 5 years at clubs like the tunnel limelight sobs um rebar and funny enough you know while i was in college i was also a cultural anthropology major and my focus of study was uh, music, art, dance, and culture, and, and exploring that historically. And so it's really all always been for me about creative community and coming together through music, art, and dance, and culture. Amazing. You're bringing me back. <laughs> <laughs> So
1: what led you to open Sutra, um, your own lounge nightclub on the Lower East Side?
2: Well, you know, while I was throwing my parties for years, I also had day jobs Um, throughout that time. I was working at record labels like Sony and Micmac. I worked for Susan Blonde, Inc. and PR. Um, I worked at SOBs. Um, and so I was always juggling this day life, night life, um, double life (laughs) (laughs) kind of situation. And I really realized as I was dabbling in all these different potential careers in entertainment, um, that events was really where I wanted to be and, and go full time. So I started, um, a full-time event planning company, and eventually I became an investor in a venue um, that I could sort of just do my events in one place instead of doing them all over the city. Um, after about a year, that venue, which I was an investor in, um was on the verge of folding, and I essentially took the opportunity to take over that venue from the other owners and took it out of a rather precarious situation, a venue that was in debt and in trouble, and I renamed it, redesigned it, relaunched it, um, got it out of debt within a year, and ran it for 10 years on my own. And that is Sutra. Yes, it was called Sutra Lounge, and it was on the corner of First and First in the East Village, and it followed my original vision of the solution of uh, my weekly live music open mic jam session. Um it was really meant to be a common ground for diverse expression, a crossroads of first and first in New York, and to really represent New York City um music. And culture, hip hop, reggae, Latin, eighties, rock and roll, and but unfortunately, I didn't have a live music stage. But ultimately, it was for the best because we really became a um, a mecca of sorts for underground DJ-driven dance culture that um, we really became well known for.
1: Yes, and I remember I've going to the space, and I don't know if you remember this, but. I remember meeting you there once. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. At the, I think it was it was some sort of a, I think a women's networking event, or mm-hmm. it was a it was it was an event that night that was why um, why I was there. But I just mm-hmm. remember meeting you and the space being very cool, being very dark. So <laughs> yes. D- a dark-, dark room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, but um, yeah, no. It, and to have a ten-year run is, I don't. I mean, in in nightlife, is that's like an eternity.
2: <laughs> well, it was definitely a vibe lounge. Uh, you know, we would say it was a vibe bar, not a dive bar. It was actually two hundred and fifty capacity on two floors with two bars, two DJ booths and a lot of red lighting, and candlelight, and mirrored mosaic stairwells, and it had a sutra vibe, but it was also very New York, and what we were really most known for ultimately because of the great talent that came through was our old school hip hop nights on Tuesdays with Tony Touch, where you would see anyone from Cool Herc, DJ Premier, uh, Daryl from Run DMC, like all of the old school hip hop legends would come through. But to your point, we also did, you know, Purim parties and proms and corporate events and weddings and fundraisers and we really were able to have, you know, real great celebrity show up and also break a lot of local talent, like giving D-Nice his first DJ gig, but also, you know, doing The Roots record release parties or, you know, having the Marley brothers coming to honor Bob Marley's birthday to having Obama's entire staff sh- show up for... um You know, a party to celebrate their win at the White House. (laughs) So it was really um, eclectic and diverse to say the least.
1: Ah, yes. Amazing. And then you, so you also, you got involved with Manhattan's community board with liquor licensing committee. Was that during your time um, with Sutra?
2: Yes. Well, You know, within the first year of running Sutra on my own, um, we wound up being the recipients of a lot of three one one complaints from one particular neighbor and they were really racking up <laughs> um, i I didn't know at the time that I had actually inherited. A complainer from the venue it was before and the one, the venue it was before that. Um, and it was an anonymous, uh, caller and we were all of a sudden really getting visits almost on a nightly basis from enforcement agencies. And one day I, Uh, woke up, I wound up living above the bar also for 10 years and woke up to a caravan of news vans outside, um, saying that we had received the most 311 calls of any club, um, in the, in, in Manhattan. And it was ultimately because of this one caller, and this is really the moment that activated me, um, not only to defend myself, but to defend the industry and to say, how can um, one person with unsubstantiated calls um, without ever having received any summonses or fines or to be held guilty could be deemed a bad operator, so to speak, or a negligent operator and to be subjected to um, um, a lot of enforcement that at the time didn't feel, um, you know, it wasn't really vetted and didn't feel fair to me at the time. And so I felt like I really wanted to do something about this to help to define good and bad operators, and also to possibly find a way to help resolve quality of life issues with neighbors um, in, in a different way. I didn't know at the time, but nearly 15 years later, I would be in this position and creating a five borough citywide free mediation program called MEND, which helps to resolve quality of life issues between neighbors and venues. So, um, to answer your question though yeah, um
1: no, that is that's amazing, and
2: yeah,
1: and that I mean, when I was thinking of my tip today, I was thinking- of your career a bit and how things just kind of unfolded and and led yes. you to the position you're at today
2: and and when you were saying that quote, I was feeling the same thing that. <laughs> You know, people often ask me, how did you wind up here in this position? I always just say "Um, it's because I always just followed what I loved and did what I was what I was passionate about. And, you know, I think if you do that, if you just always follow your heart literally and follow your dreams and follow your passion and know what you're good at and know what kind of problems you want to solve and can solve, that it ultimately ultimately leads you to your destiny. Um and that's how it really felt here um when I arrived at this position. Yes. Yeah, so
1: so the the position was created um well, I mean you're the first in it. So mm-hmm. and I'm I'm thinking maybe you just shared the story you shared with us um at your interview for it. <laughs> <laughs> but um tell like what attracted you to to become uh, the, the first ever senior executive for New York City. It's a mouthful.
2: <laughs> office yes. of
1: Nightlife. I know. I have it all here. I'm trying to get it right.
2: <laughs> well, you know, again, it was really part of this trajectory, trying to figure, you know, being politically activated to defend myself and the industry, joining the community board, also being a founding member of the New York City Hospitality Alliance, who. You know, back in 2006, we're talking about the need to create an office of nightlife, a night czar, much like they had already had in Berlin. I mean, I'm sorry, in Amsterdam at the time. And year after year, we were seeing this global movement happening of nightlife offices and nighttime economy management, nighttime governance a focus on nighttime governance happening around the world and New York year after year. And I was part of these conversations talking about how wise it would be and why didn't we already have one? Never once thinking it would be me just being part of that conversation. So. Um, After 10 years, I made the choice to sell my venue. I felt like that was a good run. I wanted to go out on top. I didn't want to wait until nobody wanted to come anymore. And so um, I sold the venue and I opened up a consulting company, as you mentioned, to help other people do it so I didn't have to and take my experience to help people not only open but operate and even how to close and land the plane when they were ready. And then really two years after, two and a half years after I closed Sutra, um, I had heard through the grapevine that lo and behold, um, the mayor was in fact going to create a mayor's office of nightlife. And My phone lit up and everyone's like, this is perfect for you. This job was meant for you. And I read the job description and it really read like my life story. It read like my resume. And so I just I applied like everyone else, like hundreds and hundreds of other people. I submitted it into the portal on nyc.gov and went through a series of more than seven interviews, ultimately with the mayor, and was thankfully and gratefully appointed.
1: Yeah, well, it's, uh, yes, meant to be. And you've, so this started in 2018. Tell us a bit about, like, what, what your job entails, how it's changed, and, I mean, now well, through the pandemic, no one saw that coming, but <laughs> right. it's gotta have been, I mean, I will assume the past two years have, have, have had their challenges and, and kinda changed your your day-to-day uh tasks as well.
2: I mean, yes, it 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 definitely I think it changed the urgency of the importance of of uh helping this industry obviously this office was created because it was historically seen as a um, liability and not an asset there was the only interface with with the city was through enforcement and um it was not necessarily framed in a way that really identified Not only what it contributed to the city's economy and culture, but also to really look at what can the city do to help to elevate and support this important industry. So all of these things were essentially why it was created to have a non-enforcement representative, um, thankfully from the industry, that could help represent and support and make sure that its voice was being heard. And I was able to take my experience and create this sort of infrastructure of what it could be and what it should be from scratch. Um, And, you know, based on my, again, my experience, whether it be through operating and interfacing with the city, um, interfacing with inspection and enforcement, managing quality of life complaints and community boards um also the more subtle issues around um harm reduction and safety issues around consent and um even drug um use um mental health really defining the complexities and unique issues to life at night And I think when the pandemic came, you know, we essentially, first of all, I was grateful to already be in this position and have had established it to some degree and gained respect and within the administration and within the industry that this was an important office. And things didn't really necessarily change as far as our purpose. Our purpose was to be here as a dedicated non-enforcement liaison to make sure that the industry was getting information and resources that they needed and that we were amplifying their needs and making sure that their voice um, was represented at the table where decisions were being made. So it was essentially the same job, but now we pivoted into really a um crisis management mode and everything that we did and do is really truly about making sure that this industry survives through this storm, but also comes out better um, on the other side. And we've been doing that in a myriad of ways over the last two years, um, and I'm happy to share some of those with you.
1: Yes, yes, please do. Um. <laughs> um,
2: well, firstly, it was great, you know, to be able to be invited to this uh, within the administration on the interagency task force, forces that were assembled, um, you know, to start identifying and realizing what is the issues? What is the industry need? How are, how does this city going to survive this? So nightlife for the first time was really there um, being able to say, this works for us. This doesn't work for us. This this is what we need. We uh, hosted over 26, what we call town calls, but really were like zooms webinars that provided um, the resources, guidelines, information, and support that reached you know, nearly 20,000 participants since last April 2020. Uh, conducted surveys um, along the way, helped to advocate and to advise on the grants and loan programs that were coming in, such as the um, uh, Shuttered Venue Operator Grant um, Also, so many organizations started forming from within the industry, like NEVA, which was the um, uh, Independent Venue Association, the New York Nightlife United, um, Save NYC Bars. For the first time, the industry was really organizing and we were able to reach out to them and be in regular communication with them and be their representative. And then we also took the opportunity to start developing some programs. One I mentioned is MEND, which is the mediation program. Um, Mm -hmm. Another was Elevate, which helps to address mental health and well-being, uh, providing weekly free mental health, online uh, collective trauma support groups, and one-on-one casework to help Uh, create personalized, affordable mental health plans, dealing with suicide prevention, harm reduction, Um, and also helping workers, right, with unemployment, uh, health benefit access. Um, And then we also have businesses that are just every day trying to open, reopen brand new venues, navigating them through... All of the bureaucracy um, that they need to go through for permitting and and licensing—it's um, really just been, you know, um, dealing with every facet on a micro and macro level, trying to um, help them and the city um, heal through this and address again some of the. Issues that the city, the industry had before the pandemic and trying to figure out how to uh, stabilize for the future. And that would be um, the 160 page recommendation report that we also released right in the middle of the pandemic that has over 25 recommendations on how to bring, deliver this industry out and set it up for great success for the future.
1: It's amazing. I was exploring your website, and I will tell people your website at the end of the podcast, just so they can go and find it. Because there's all this, you know, is available online. You have so many resources. I was so impressed with what you've established. From I was looking at Elevate and your your weekly your weekly free mental health support group. I mean, there's so many things you're providing and. And just resources for people. Um, it's it's impressive that you have this and have
2: established it as
1: for for <laughs> Thank my life. You.
2: Well, necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> <laughs> True, you know. And we're just really grateful to um, be here now and be in this position and you know especially when you've lived a lot of the frustrations obviously not covid related but all the other things that it takes to run and operate a night life establishment and you know to be given the opportunity to um be able to find creative and common sense solutions and then implement them citywide with the power of the the city and the administration um that has your back and says, yes, we will support this. um, It's really great to be able to figure out ways to help really support the industry in even sometimes the most subtle of ways that makes the biggest differences.
1: Yes, very true. So before we take a break, one, one more question here. So what would you advise to anyone listening who, who really wants to open their own place or get into nightlife? Uh, is there a biggest lesson learned or, or where to start tip?
2: Well, I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't want to open up a bar. <laughs> <laughs> You know, even at Sutra, I mean, I would have ambassadors or reporters from you know huge networks, great writers, award winning actors. everybody wants to open up a bar, and uh, I always just say if it it was easy, everybody would do it, you know, but it's really hard, and it's it's actually. Not just a job, it's a lifestyle choice. And to really think about what it means to the way you live your life um, every day and night until your lease is up or you sell or or you know whatever potential end there might be. Um there's a lot to consider, a lot um much like the things we discussed, right? It's not just about having a good DJ and a great cocktail. You are responsible for the lives of every single person that walks in that door until they get home. (laughs) Um, And I think that's part of the pressure and stress, um, making sure that it's fun and and that it's a place people want to come to and people feel safe at, not just the patrons, but the workers, um, that there's fairness, that um, you make people feel better than when they walked in. Um, and also you have a lot of bills to pay and there's worker rights and landlord relations and community relations and police relations. And, um, I think at the end of the day, you know, it's good to have a clear vision and a good plan. Um, because a lot of the plans you make at the beginning, that sets the trajectory for everything for the next 10 years and it's almost hard to shift gears. But um, I also think sometimes the less you know, you know, you can't know it all, but like if you knew everything you were about to get into, you might just not do it. So having a sense of magic and wonder and total Herculean confidence in yourself and in your vision, but also being prepared for anything and everything because that's what you're going to have to deal with. (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, that I, now I have some follow up questions for that because I want to. Two, one was, um, do you think it's easier or harder now to open, let's say, in New York City, or just different? And then the other question was, would you open another place?
2: Well, I mean, listen, a lot of what was hard about it um, in the beginning you know, before the Office of Nightlife is why the Office of Nightlife is here. That is why we're here, is to make it easier and to make it a better experience and to feel like you are seen and heard and helped from, you know, with the city. And I think that former Mayor de Blasio really saw the vision and the value of the industry, and now with the new administration and with Mayor Adams, who has been extremely vocal um, about his love and support um, of the industry, I think if you know, if I was a new nightlife operator, I would feel um, that it was better now than yeah. it was before and i think it's going to get even better there's so there's so much attention this this pandemic really highlighted that nightlife is not just a luxury but a necessity to this city um to its 35.1 billion dollar um economic output it's 300,000 jobs um Seven hundred million in tax revenue. These are all pre-pandemic numbers, um, right before it hit. In the economic impact study that we conducted, that you can also see. This is also a place where our diversity that New York is known for thrives, where people find refuge and safety um, in, in, of marginalized communities and finding their their chosen families um it defines us in so many ways nightlife um economically culturally personally and it is part of i think in, inevitably part of the healing of this city the revival of nightlife is what will be helping to restore our well-being in so many ways and so I think I know the city recognizes that now more than ever and is going to do everything in its power to make sure that it is supported and comes back stronger and more sustainable um you know moving forward
1: yes makes sense and very well said and would you open your own place again maybe
2: I mean, you know, wherever destiny takes me.
1: Yes, let it (laughs) unfold naturally. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so on that note, let's take a little break. We will come back. We'll play my speed round. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience this week. And the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
0: Hi, I'm Kiki Luya, the executive director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Shift Work. In the last six months, some 6,500 restaurants have closed their doors, and there's never been a time in restaurants and their 12 million workers have been more vulnerable. It's time to transform hospitality. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. What does it really take to make that experience happen? And who are the countless workers responsible? We're talking porters, cleaning crew, prep cooks, servers, baristas, hosts, bartenders, barbacks, managers, sommeliers, and chefs. I'll also introduce you to organizations that are leading industry transformation. We'll discuss mental health, fair pay, racial justice, and how hospitality can change for the better. We need it. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app.
1: Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Arielle Pallett. She is the Senior Executive Director for the Office of Nightlife at the new NYC Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. Arielle, it is time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as mm. chocolate or vanilla. Okay. You ready? Okay. Born ready. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can sense that. <laughs> Here we go. Eat in at home or eat out at a restaurant?
2: Oh, out at a restaurant every day of the week.
1: <laughs> Indoor dining or all fresco dining? Both. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktails. Nice. How about tasting menu or a la carte?
2: I prefer a la carte.
1: Okay. Small plates or large plates?
2: Large plates.
1: How about communal table or chef's counter?
2: Chef's counter.
1: With you on that one. Okay. Okay. Tip tipping or all-inclusive charge?
2: Oof. I think, you know, with large parties, I prefer all inclusive. It just gets really complicated. Um, but sometimes I like to give more than they allot for themselves. So, you know, I guess it depends on the situation.
1: Okay, got it. How about dive bars, vibe bars, which I just heard about, or mm-hmm. cocktail bars?
2: I mean, sometimes they're all in one, aren't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess I was initially going for more
1: of a dive bar or a, like a fancier, fancier. Um,
2: you know, the, I think the beauty of New York is that there's always some. You know, whatever you're in the mood for is available. Sometimes I'm in the mood for a dive bar. Sometimes I'm in the in the mood for a cocktail bar. Um, sometimes it's white gloves. Sometimes it's you know, go wash your hands. <laughs> yeah yeah i I mean i love it all i really love it all i love um whatever the variety is it really all depends on my mood and that's the beauty of new york is that it has it all
1: yes very true okay i got three more i got darts or pool from Mm -hmm. games you play
2: definitely pool
1: great cheese plate or dessert Uh, dessert. And then I have Manhattan or Brooklyn, or I'll take any of the boroughs.
2: I mean, I'm born and raised in Manhattan, but I'm, you know... I come from three generations of Brooklyn, and being a representative of the mayor's office now, I've got to really enjoy and explore all five boroughs, and you really haven't lived unless you've been to Staten Island. So I just love them all, and I think every New Yorker should make a point to visit them regularly.
1: Fantastic. And that's the game. Yay. Fine. <laughs> Okay, so for industry news this week, article I picked out was on Eater New York. It came out last week, and it was entitled, A James Beard-backed food hall is headed to Chelsea this fall. The foundation is partnering up with Google and the team behind Chelsea Market to open the space at Pier 57. This was by Erica Adams, and I also happened to see in the Times today, Florence Fabricant wrote about this too. Um, so this is this is interesting big news for the James Beard Foundation, which mm-hmm. is the first time they're they're getting into the food hall business. Mm-hmm. And um the space was initially going to be uh an Anthony Bourdain Singaporean street hawker inspired food hall, and the, that got yes. it ended up not happening There hasn't been happening. So this is this is um what's happening on Pier 57. Um uh, it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's pretty exciting. I'm interested to see who they bring in. There's going to be 17 food vendors and they're going to, James Beard is going to run uh, their own uh, vendor stall and also they're going to do some kitchen and uh, sh- they are going to have a show kitchen and demonstration space on the ground floor.
2: Mm-hmm. So what do, you, what do you think about this? I think it's extremely exciting. You know, I really think, um, even though this was sort of in the works before the pandemic, it's very much part of the revival that we know we feel is in the air and know is coming. And, um, I think it shows a lot of potential and creativity. I think in order for it really to meet the standard of New York, it has to really display great uh, diversity and equity and accessibility to really represent um, the different types of food and people and culture that we have in New York and making sure that it really displays the true excellence in each of those categories. And I feel like James Beard is an extraordinarily trusted entity And if it's also somewhat in the name of or the spirit of Anthony Bourdain, um, I think it's a really exciting prospect that I think will add nothing but great value to the ever-growing culture of New York food and beverage.
1: Yeah, I agree with all that. I I think it's exciting. I think um, Claire Reichenbach who's the foundation's chief executive, she's she's quoted a bit in this piece and and actually then I know a name hasn't been selected yet for it, but um she's been a past guest of the show and I feel the 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 Beard Foundation has been working hard at at, you know, at making changes within the organization and obviously taking on new exciting projects. So <laughs> Um, um mm-hmm. it will be interesting to see what who goes into this and, and yes, I agree it with diversity and 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 representing different different chefs and um, different types of food. Um I I think that said this their plans to get this open by the fall. Um we'll see if that happens. Uh I know working with restaurants that nothing really ever opens when <laughs> you expect it to, but mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, we'll, 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 we'll see. So congratulations to them and, um, look forward to hearing more about it. I don't know if you had any more, more on that you want to add.
2: Well, I mean, I just think it's a perfect example, you know, of the potential of what is on the horizon. Um, I think that, you know, there's been a lot of, um, lessons learned in this experience that we're still actually in. And, you know, having maybe perhaps being a bit more daring, thinking bigger, thinking more creatively, um, thinking more collaboratively um, is what we are seeing. And I think a lot of people also are seeing hospitality um, and sociability in general with a lot more gratitude than there was before. There was a lot of talk pre-pandemic. Oh, is New York dead? Or I miss old New York or nothing's the way it used to be. And it was just whine, whine, whining all the time, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> it's like, you know what? You don't know what you got until it's almost gone. Mm-hmm. And I think... People realized how essential this work is. People in hospitality were deemed essential. It was essential to not only pay bills, but to be connected to yourself, to people, to have your mental health in good order, and to have people want to come from around the world. Like This is important. This is really important. And... I think now we can reemerge from this with a whole new sense of gratitude and creativity and momentum and um, entrepreneurialism. And I mean, I am just elated and excited to see what unfolds in New York. I I know it's going to be um, the best.
1: (laughs) yes, no amazing i'm I'm just smiling, listening to you. it's very it's exciting times, and I think um it's true i true i mean I've been here through through the pandemic. I've lived in New York since ninety eight so I've seen a lot of changes myself, and I'm excited for you know what's to come so mm-hmm. New York is not, and no, never be dead
2: <laughs> never um you know, I just think it's really important to just, you know, also be, um, sober in a sense, uh, to, uh, turn a phrase about, um, you know, the seriousness of what we've been through, um, and the lessons learned regarding, um, safety and health, um, I think equity and again, accessibility and affordability and, um, so many issues around um mental health again and consent and race um and how to have real honest um conversations about how can we take this opportunity to come back better um you know i i used a phrase throughout like the whole pandemic you can't change the tires on a moving car you know and so we were really at a standstill for a long time and there was a lot of really important conversations happening about where the industry can do better and how it can do better and we were listening to those conversations we were part of those conversations and it's informing the work about how we can move forward and continue to um Address these needs and challenges in creative and commonsensical ways that really help to make it nightlife more fair, more equitable, and more fun and more safe. Um, and uh, creating safe places, safe places where people feel like they can go and let go, um, but still be um, in a good place where they feel yeah. safe and secure.
1: Awesome! I love that. That's a great expression that you came up with.
2: I don't know if I came up with it, but I sure used it a lot.
1: <laughs> well, it's the <a> first time, <laughs> or at least I'm hearing of it. I think so. I, I like it. I'll give you—you you get the credit by me. Um, <laughs> okay, so it's time for my solo dining experience. So this week it's at Bonnie's. Here's the rundown: the location, three nine eight Manhattan Avenue at Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The concept, it's a Cantonese restaurant with the chef's own twists. The chef and owner is Calvin Eng. Why did I go? Well, I heard really great things about this place that just opened in December. My experience. So I got an early reservation for one via Resi. It was a freezing night in New York. Uh, I arrived. I was uh, warmly greeted and I opted to sit at a table Um closer to the back, away from the door versus the bar up front. They offered me both. Um, And it was nice because I had this two top that was – Near right, actually, right in front of where the kitchen passes, and in front of the chef, so I kind of watched some of the action as I had my dinner. My server was absolutely lovely. I mean, it just always reminds me why I die now, like hospitality, just how it makes you feel when people uh, you know are in the industry, I think for the right reasons and 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 get hospitality and this place certainly did. Um Calvin came out at the end, he, he, I think he just recognized my name as someone in the industry and I met him and brought, uh, he brought a complimentary fruit plate that I had. Um, and so I really had a lovely time. Uh, what did I get? So I ordered wonton and brodo, which is fish and shrimp wontons in a superior citrus parm broth. It's like a wonton soup. Um, I also got deo gok or gok. Uh, totally, probably mispronouncing that. It's their Chinese long beans and fermented bean curd garlic butter. Um, and yao jia guai sauce. Um, and I also got cha su McRib, which is uh, steamed ribs with Chinese mustard and uh, B&B pickles on a milk bun. So it's kind of like a McRib sandwich. Uh, my take? I really loved everything. The wonton soup was super flavorful, light, delicious broth. Uh, the long beans, were I would say, our must get. get. They were really, really superior. And the McRib that uh, was delicious. So I mean, it was a huge sandwich. I took leftovers, um, but I enjoyed I enjoyed it at the restaurant as well. The ambiance, I'd say, it's a minimalistic type dining room. Um, Mostly two tops along a banquette. There's a bar up front. And the bathroom, I have to say, I mean, the bathroom has this fun disco-like thing going on with changing light colors and music. It's kind of a party in there. <laughs> um, I'd say this place is perfect for dinner with friends. Interesting tidbit. Calvin was formerly the chef de cuisine at Winsun, which is a great American Taiwanese restaurant in East Williamsburg. And I'd been there before had great meals there. He's 27, and this is his first restaurant in his own, and Bonnie's is named for his mother. Personal fun fact. So growing up, I did not like green beans, really. I still don't like them that much if they're just, there's nothing done to them. So I'm always delighted when I like a version of green beans with long beans, and these were quite delicious. Uh, The cost of this meal was $56. That's not including tax and gratuity, gratuity or the complimentary fruit plate that I got at the end. Would I go back? Yes, certainly. Much more of the menu I'd like to try. Their website is bonniesbrooklyn.com and, and Instagram at Bonnie's Brooklyn. So there you go. Have you have you, have you heard this place, um, Ariel,
2: or been there? No, but now I'm starving. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry. I, I kind of I- did that to myself too. <laughs>
2: No, I, I think Instagram has been such an incredible and now TikTok has been such an incredible game changer for uh, supporting uh, restaurants and bars and clubs and really being able to like see the food and see the ambiance. And I have multiple folders in my Instagram and social accounts of all the places that I want to go uh, visit. And I'll add that one to the list.
1: Oh, cool! Well, you're organized on Instagram. That's good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm very organized. It's the only way to keep everything straight and moving forward.
1: Yeah, no, and 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 it is an amazing, amazing tool. And um, yes, it's become become kind of a, a like a, just a, a necessity or part of mm-hmm. of the industry for sure. So, um, okay, uh, it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Jim Meehan. He is a bartender, a journalist, and the author of the PDT Cocktail Book and Meehan's Bartender Manual. Jim has worked in nearly every capacity of the hospitality business, and I, I... I mean, I love Jim. I mean, he's amazing, and I'm so excited to have him on the show. Uh, so, and as a, someone familiar with your your nightlife for sure,
2: mm-hmm. so uh,
1: um, Ariel, can you please ask a question for Jim?
2: Oh, okay. Um, how do you feel? <laughs> How do you feel after being uh, after the experience you've gone through in the uh, the last two years? And um, what keeps you optimistic moving forward?
1: That's awesome. I will I will ask, and I should have noted also that he he currently lives in Portland, Oregon. He 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 moved out of New York um, a few years ago. So um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: well, it will be interesting to talk about you know the what's happening there.
2: Yes, well, it was a global experience, so wherever no. you were, you went through it, and um True. You know it takes a lot of optimism and confidence and creativity and vision to go through this and still want to keep going um to serve you know, as people in hospitality do, you know, it's definitely a um it's it's a career and a profession that comes from the heart, you know, and so, you know, it's really it's a hard business, but people do it because they love it. And um, it would be interesting to hear, you know, how he fared and what key, has kept him optimistic and moving forward.
1: Yes, absolutely. I will ask great questions. And um, that's the show. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and thank you. For all that you do and your team does for nightlife in New York City, I mean, as somebody who's passionate about hospitality, nightlife, restaurants, all of the above, I appreciate you and th- that you've you've created and are are making it easier for for pl- people to open places and to survive and thrive in this industry, which is hard. It is hard. So, thank you for. You're all everything you do. And I wish you much continued success.
2: I really appreciate that. And the opportunity to share what we do with um, anyone else who's interested and they can go to nyc.gov uh, slash nightlife or follow us on social NYC gov or on my personal um, Instagram as well. And just, you know, follow along and be involved. And uh, because we're all in this together, still moving forward. And now it's time to get back to the business of doing business in New York City. And uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be able to do it. So thank you again.
1: Oh, my pleasure. You're very welcome. My guest today has been Ariel Pallet. She's the Senior Executive Director for the Office of Nightlife at the NYC Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment. And as she just said, their website is nyc.gov backslash nightlife, go check it out, lots of great stuff up there, uh, you can, and you can follow her again at NYC Nightlife Gov and Ariel Pellets, and you can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry, my Facebook page is All in the Industry, my websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com, all of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org, we are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks always to my engineer today, Kevin. Thanks again to Arielle and thanks to Joanna. And um, I'm your host. Yes, your host and your producer, Sherry Bayer. I will be back next week with a new show. I hope you tune in then. And till then, stay safe and well. And thank you for being a part of All in the Industry. Bye.